0: Good evening to each one. Good to see you all here this evening. I want to especially thank those who are visiting with us for your presence here this evening and want you to know that you're always welcome. We're going to go through a, well, I don't want to say short, but uh, the passage on which we are basing our lesson tonight is relatively short passage, sometimes you read through a passage and maybe it's just a few verses, but you have the thought, well, you know, there's a sermon in there somewhere. And so this outline I've actually had for a number of years, and it's been a long time since I'd looked at it, and I thought it would be beneficial for us to take a look and to consider seven things a Christian should never be. You might be wondering, well, why seven things? Well, that's based on the passage that we'll be noting here in a moment. Obviously, we could come up with a list a lot longer than just seven things, but as we look at the uh, the passage here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 through 18, there are seven basic principles that Paul touches on here that I think are good for us to consider. So we'll read that together here as we get started. First Thessalonians chapter five, beginning in verse fourteen. He says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who
1: are unruly, comfort the faint hearted, uphold the weak, be patient
0: with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. But always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now this is more or less the way that uh, the Apostle concludes this particular letter that he writes. And. Oftentimes you'll hear this passage cited in different sermons or different studies, and usually just a verse here or there uh, out of what we've read. But I don't know if you were counting it at all or not, but we're going to look at seven things that Paul touches on here in his concluding words that I think are worth our time to meditate upon. The first of those things is being unruly. The text there, it says, warn those who are unruly. What does that mean? Well, just simply is the idea of somebody who doesn't want to be ruled, doesn't want to listen to authority. We might deal with people like that in the workplace. Maybe we think about somebody as we were growing up in school that, was just unruly. They didn't want to follow the rules. They didn't want to listen to instruction that was given. But sometimes we can be like that as Christians. We can become unruly when we decide we'd rather do what we want to do versus what God has instructed us to be doing. We're studying in Second Peter chapter 2 in our morning class But I thought that a portion of that text was appropriate to this particular point. Verses 9 and 10 there. It says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, it says. These individuals are presumptuous, they are self-willed, not being afraid even to speak evil of dignitaries. And so sometimes when we think about the concept of being unruly, we might think about some you know, punk kid out here on the street who has a mohawk and is riding his skateboard, and we think, ah, that guy doesn't care anything about listening to authority. But when we really stop and think about it, like we said, we can be this way sometimes as Christians. In Romans chapter 6, you recall at the end of chapter 5 in the discourse that Paul engages here in this Roman letter, he spent some time discussing the grace of God, and he talked about in the end of that fifth chapter how that despite man's sin growing worse and abounding, That God's grace abounded all the more. And so naturally then, Paul anticipates an objection to what he's teaching about. The need to, of course, submit in obedience to God and follow his commandments. So he says there at the beginning of chapter 6, Well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now look, Paul, if you're talking about how men's sins just continued to get worse and and there was an overabundance of these things, but yet God's grace was greater, then why not just continue to do as we please? Well, he says certainly not. This is not the point that I'm trying to, uh, to make here, in other words. And then he brings us back to reality with Another question, he says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And this is where he begins to explain, of course, what baptism is all about and what the process of obedience to the gospel really is, what it's a a type of or a a picture of. It's the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Verse 3 says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death. Therefore. We were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. We're no longer going to pursue the same things that got us in trouble in the first place. We've died to that. Now we've risen to walk in a better pathway. Proverbs 15 and verse 10, it says "Their harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and it says he who hates correction will die. That's pretty blunt words, but this is reality. When we do not listen to instruction, when we do not follow the rules, it's not to say that there aren't exceptions, of course. But by and large, just in a very earthly way of thinking, you know, somebody goes out here and says, well, I know that there's laws about how fast I'm supposed to be driving here on this road, but yeah, I don't want to listen to that. I'm just going to drive what I think makes sense. I know they put a stop sign here, but you know, you don't really need to come to a full stop here. That's silly. I'm just going to kind of slow down a little bit and then I'll keep going. You know, People will get that kind of mentality and what happens? Well, they get into an accident or they cause an accident, right? And so just from a very earthly perspective, we can understand that, that reality. How much more so spiritually speaking, when we are unruly, when we do not want to be corrected by God's word. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul here talking about the need for us as Christians to be disciplined. He says in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run... Uh, in a race they all run but one receives the prize and so run in such a way that you may obtain it everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things the meaning of the word temperate there is is self-controlled now they do it to obtain a perishable crown but we are running for something far greater than just a, a gold medal he says we're running for an imperishable crown therefore I run thus not with uncertainty, thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And so even the great heroes that we look to, certainly Paul would be amongst those, no doubt. We read his words here and we see that he certainly understood that just because he was an apostle didn't mean that he didn't have the same kinds of temptations that the rest of us as human beings deal with. And he understood that if he did not discipline himself, did not bring his will into subjection to Christ's will, he could preach all his life about what to do and how to do it, and it could all be completely correct. But he didn't follow that same advice himself, he would be eternally lost. Another thing a Christian should never be, as we come back to our passage, is discouraging. Notice there in the instruction that Paul gave, he said, comfort the faint-hearted. And there's many. There's those that are here amongst us this evening who are faint-hearted, who are going through difficult things. And when you're going through those difficulties, a lot of the time, if you're like me, <laughs> when you're going through something like that, you you just want to sit down and you just want it to be over with. Sometimes you feel like giving up. And what's the point? Sometimes we fail to see the light at the end of the tunnel, if you will, and just seems like we're never going to get out of whatever it is that we're Dealing with. Well, we as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to learn to be comforting rather than the opposite of that. And sometimes, even though we might have good intentions, we can actually cause more harm than good uh, for somebody who is maybe struggling with something in their life. I think about in the book of Job, and you call how Job went through all this turmoil, he lost virtually everything that he had from an earthly standpoint at the hand of Satan who was seeking to see his faith crumble. And after the first couple chapters there, it talks about how these three friends come to to be with Job. And at the very beginning, it says they didn't say anything. It actually goes to the point of... of specifying that. They they just sat with him, just to be there, just to be an encouragement, to let him know he's not all alone, that he has people there that care. And the trouble didn't really start until they opened their mouths, (laughs) you remember, and then the whole rest of the book is them trying to tell him that, ah, you you did something wrong, or else this wouldn't be happening. They were completely backwards in their understanding of what was really going on. And so we need to, to think about this concept of being comforting and, and not discouraging. And sometimes it's just our, our presence at someone's side that can be that encouragement that is needed. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, it instructs us here to let no corrupt word proceed out of our mouths, but rather what is good for necessary Edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. I've always liked that word necessary that's injected there. You know, he could have just said, speak what is good for edification. But he reminds us that it's necessary. We need edified, all of us do, as we go through this life. And so we must think about what we are saying and the effect that it has on others. Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it says rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Again, sometimes we don't even have to say anything. It's just that we're there, that we're letting someone know that we care and that we are there for them in whatever it is they might be dealing with. Proverbs 16, verse 24, it says their pleasant words are like a honeycomb. They're sweet. They're they're pleasant. Sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. And you just stop and think about uh, situations just in your own life where maybe you get a phone call and somebody shared bad news with you. Well, that, that drags you down real quick, doesn't it? But if you get a phone call and somebody shares some good news or they Just say, hey, you know, I was just thinking about you. I'd see how you're doing today. Something just as simple as that. You think about how much that can lift you and, and be an encouragement to you. Just knowing that someone cares and someone is thinking of you. And so how true it is what we read here in this verse. Another thing that a Christian should never be is too busy to help others. And who's guilty of being too busy, right? I'll put my hand up there. (laughs) A lot of times, maybe we can come up with some valid reasons why we're busy, right? Well, I'm working or I'm working my second job or, you know, I've got this going on or that going on. If we really want to, we can always find an excuse, You stop and think about it. If there's a situation where help is needed, whether it's great or small, and you have the opportunity to meet that need, you can always find a reason why you can't if you're looking for it. But we as Christians should not be looking for excuses as to why we can't help. We should be looking for opportunities through which we can help. Again, going back to the language of the verse there, He says, uphold the weak. We can't uphold the weak if we're too busy and caught up in our own things and neglecting the needs of others. James chapter 2, popular passage, really the whole chapter is popular passage, where James is discussing true faith and how faith without works is dead. And as he seeks to illustrate that very point, in verse 14 he says, What does it profit, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food? And one of you says to them, depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, then what does it profit? I can't even count the number of times I've used this example, or read this passage and used the same example. I'll pick on Matt tonight. You know, if Matt comes to my house at one in the morning, and he knocks on the door, and I crawl out of bed, and what's going on? Here? I'm going to be grumpy because he's at my door at 1 a.m., right? And I open the door, and Matt's there, and he looks like he's been in a car accident or something, and he's you know, barely standing, and he's bleeding and all these things. And he says, oh, man, I'm just really in a bad way. This happened, and I need some help. And I say, well, I really hope that works out for you, man. Good luck. And I just close the door and go back to bed. Wherein is my care for Matt, right? I mean, that's a very humorous way to think about it, but that's really what James is saying here. We can say we love each other and that we care about each other all day long, but when the situations actually arise in which we need to demonstrate such, are they just empty words or do we follow through? Verse 17 there, Faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. That's really hard to do, if you really stop and think about it, because we're very selfish creatures. But nonetheless, this is what we're called to. This is what Jesus gave us the example of when he came to the earth. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, not to say that we don't take care of ourselves, but the point is that we would think of others and be even more so interested in making sure others are taken care of. Galatians 6 and verse 10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all and especially to those who are of the household of faith.
1: What else should we never be?
0: Well, we should never be impatient. Now, who here has trouble with that? (laughs) Everybody. Had many a conversation with my wife, and she reminds me often of she wasn't blessed with patience. But I'm the
1: same way, so not just picking on her.
0: The instruction there in our passage says be patient with all. It's easy to be patient with some people. You know, you think about maybe at the workplace and if you're in some kind of customer service, you know, sometimes you'll deal with You know, maybe some sweet old lady comes in and she just really doesn't know what's going on. And you're trying to maybe show her something on a computer and she just doesn't get it. And, well, I'll be patient. I mean, she's just the sweetest thing, right? But then in other situations, we're not patient. We don't want to be patient. We want to complain and be rude and dismissive, right? But we're to be patient with all. In 1 Corinthians 13, most of us are aware there in that chapter, at least the first portion of the chapter, Paul spends some time giving a definition of what love is. And one of the things that he talks about in verse 4 there of his dialogue, he says, love suffers long. It's long-suffering. There's maybe another way to say that. It's a word that we're more familiar with. But if you love someone, you're patient. Even though they might be getting on your nerves, even though you know, this is the tenth time you've told them <laughs> whatever it is, right? We're long-suffering. And you stop and think about how long-suffering God is with us, and that's a very powerful motivator in making sure we are likewise patient as we should be. Patience, of course, long-suffering is listed as part of the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, verse 22 there, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness and self-control. Against such there is no law. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness. With long suffering. Bearing with one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond
1: of peace.
0: I don't have it in the outline here, but you know how I am. One of the things my oldest son does to me a lot. Well, they all do it, but it's funny how with kids, you ever notice that you can be sitting right next to them and they won't speak to you until you acknowledge. They'll say, hey, dad, dad. Dad, I'm right here. Just speak, right? But until you say, yeah, (laughs) I'll just continue. But my son, he does it to be funny. He does it to test my patience, I guess. Hey, Dad,
1: Dad, Dad, what? Love you. (laughs)
0: Love you, too. Or he'll say something about, I like chicken nuggets. Great, you've told me that 15 times today. Right. So I need to work on patience. I guess my son, I should look at that as a blessing because that
1: that helps me develop. Right.
0: But anyway, I was making the point about how God is patient with us. And uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 9, it says there, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, the promise of. The end of time and the final judgment, in other words, is in the context here. But in other words, why has that day not yet come? Well, the, the answer to that, as he goes on, he says it is uh, God, rather, is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is patient because he desires for every soul to have the time necessary To render obedience to his son and be saved. What else? Number five. Christians should never be vengeful. Going back to the text again. It says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. And again, sometimes that goes against our human impulses, it seems. Somebody does something to wrong us and it seems like every fiber of our being wants to get even somehow. How can I get back at this person and not just make it even, but sometimes we, we want to make it worse for them than what they did to us, right? I'll show him. But time and time again, God's word instructs us to do just the opposite of that. Romans chapter 12, one such place we might go in verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, he says, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, you know, sometimes you're going through life and other people. They are not interested in peace with you. So we might be doing everything we can to be at peace, but somebody else has other intentions. So it's not to say that there's just always going to be peace as long as we're wanting peace. But as much as it depends on us, we are to be making the effort for peace is the point there. He says, beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. The point there is that you bother his conscience. Somebody is always looking to harm you or hurt you or put you down. And all you ever have in return is something kind to say or you know, something positive to do towards them in response. That's going to that's gonna bother them after a while if they are normal in their in their mind. And sometimes we might read that and we might twist that, right? And we might think, ah, well here's how I can really get back at them. I'll just be nice to them. Ha, ha, ha. And <laughs> we kind of twist it into some kind of uh, perverted revenge, which is really not what, uh, what is meant there at all. It's just highlighting a truth about what happens when we're kind to other people, even when they're trying to harm us. Jesus, of course, said similar things. Back in Matthew 5, verse 43, he says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You can hear that said today. You go out and talk to most people, and that that's their opinion, right? But Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Going back to the verse we noted there in 2 Peter 3, God's not just long-suffering because of people who are trying currently to do good. He's, he's long-suffering, especially for those that currently aren't. Hoping that they will, in time, come to their senses and embrace His righteousness. And so we likewise need to have the same mentality, the same love for our fellow man. You know, a, an interesting example on this point Maybe we don't think of all that often, but back in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24, you remember how Saul, for a time, he was really trying to end David's life. He was very bitter and and upset that David was chosen instead of him to be king. And here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24, we find this uh, situation emerges where David has the perfect opportunity to take Saul out and to do it in such a way that, you know, Saul never sees it coming. Start there in verse 1 with me. It says, it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men, on the rocks of the wild goats. And so he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And so Saul went in to attend to his needs and David and his men were staying in the recesses of this cave. And Saul obviously didn't see him in there. They were back further than what he what he had gone. So the men of David said, This is the day of which the Lord said, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose, and noticed he secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him, because he'd cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And so David restrained his servants with these words, and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. Well, it's kind of interesting there because it's not like David had harmed Saul in any way, but even the small thing that he did, his conscience got to him because of his mentality towards who Saul was at the time. And so here's an opportunity for somebody who could have taken revenge against somebody who had treated him terribly, but yet he followed this same kind of advice that we've noticed in the other New Testament passages here. He was looking to show love and kindness even in the face of persecution. So I think there's a a powerful lesson for us there.
1: A Christian should never be without joy. Sometimes we are
0: passage says rejoice always that means when things are going well it also means when things are going not so well (laughs) rejoice always well how can we rejoice always well when you stop and think about what we have because of Christ and through Christ and in Christ that's something that no circumstance can ever take away from us unless it's a circumstance where we've chosen to walk away from God of course But otherwise, no matter what hardship it is we're dealing with, our security in Christ and our hope in Christ is something that this world can never take away from us. You go to Romans chapter 8 and read the end of that chapter, and that makes the point very well. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. John chapter 16, verse 31, Jesus spoke here to his disciples. He says, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and you will leave me alone. This is shortly before he was betrayed and
1: and ultimately put to death. But he goes on, he
0: says, yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And through Christ, we can overcome the world. First John 5 and verse 4. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, it says. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you get what you've been asking God for for so long. Well, no, it doesn't say that. He says, when you fall into various trials, just the opposite of what we'd expect to find at the end of that sentence, right? But what's his point? He says, you know that through these trials, through the testing of your faith, produces patience. Good things come when we trust in God and stick with God, even in the face of difficulty. And so we can still count it all joy. In Psalm 32, verses 10 and 11, it says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. And so be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And finally, we should never be ungrateful. If you stop and think about it, in a lot of ways these different points all kind of blend together. They all kind of Share a common thread. But the text tells us that in everything we are to give thanks. And so often it seems that we forget to be thankful. I think about in Luke chapter 17 where the ten lepers were healed by Christ, you recall. And how many came back to say thank you? Just the one. Remember Jesus said, where, where are the nine? Were there not ten who were
1: healed? We can very
0: easily in this life be ungrateful towards God, towards each other. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. We're reminded here of how thankful we ought to be as we think about what we are given through Christ. Verse 8 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Nobody's ever lived such a perfect life that they could demand God give them eternal life. Only Jesus lived a perfect life. God's gift is that even though we are imperfect, even though we are sinners, through Christ we can be cleansed. Verse 10 We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. In James 1 and verse 17, we're reminded that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. How many good gifts do we have just from day to day?
1: Just small things. A meal, a shirt,
0: something to. uh, Something to wear, something to eat, a place to to live, to stay warm, to stay out of the elements. All these little things that we so often fail to truly appreciate. In Psalm 116 and verse 17, the psalmist says, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. And that's not the only place where you find the idea of being thankful associated with being a sacrifice because in a lot of ways it is a lot of times we might have the thought before we're getting ready to eat a meal well we should probably say thanks or you know say a prayer before we eat how often have you just shrugged that off eh god knows i'm thankful and of course that applies to so many situations right well god knows we we fail to just actually thank him or maybe we just all together behave in a manner that demonstrates that we do not appreciate what we have, but we need to. And so that is the lesson for tonight. Seven things a Christian should never be. I hope that as we've meditated on these things in this short little passage together tonight, that it's been a benefit to you and that we'll all be able to be better in the days ahead as a result. Tonight, if there's anybody here who would need to come forward and make themselves right with God, we stand ready to assist you in that. If you need to be baptized tonight for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you need to uh, confess something and ask for forgiveness and ask for the prayers of your brothers and sisters here, we stand ready to do that as well, whatever it might be. So, uh, whoever is here this evening that would have such a need, we would encourage you to again, make that known and come to the front while at this time we stand and sing the song that our brothers selected.